Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This week's show hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. The show this episode, we're following up on one we did recently, and we are going to feature a bunch of questions, answer questions that we've had from our listeners, from our audience, that we appreciate. Keep them coming. We enjoy doing these podcasts where we can be interactive with you. And before we launch into that, we're going to get into a little bit of an update, what we've been doing, and of course, the pro tips that everybody loves to hear, what we've got lined up for this week. Michael, if you can please let us know about the new Sony mirrorless that you just picked up and you've been playing with since we last spoke in last week's podcast, last week's recording. How is it going with that new Sony and again, I love these names, AR7PQ17-21 Infinity Plus 10 camera. <laughs> Remind us what the model is again, please. Yeah, so I have the A7R4 and the A7R3. And then I'm using Sony Glass with both of them. So I just got back from shooting an assignment. Um, we had a, a project we were doing where we were shooting a video from a three-day project and then while a crew was shooting video my crew was shooting video i was shooting stills so that our client has the ability to put together anything they need with stills powerpoint presentations whatever you know research for next year whatever and then we did a highlight video so i found myself very busy taking tons of photos i decided i was going to go exclusively with the sony and so before I left, yeah, before I left, I ordered the Sony Flash because I'm very familiar with the Canon Flash and I knew some of the stuff was going to be indoors, right? So I ordered it on Amazon. It was supposed to get here. Didn't show up by the time I left. So then I was like, okay, I got to have a flash. So then I threw in a Canon camera too. So I ended up taking a Canon, my 1DX Mark II with a Canon Flash and a Canon 24-70. So those are the three cameras I had to work with. Just basically took a 70 to 200, a 24 to 70 Sony, and a 24 to 70 Canon. So anytime I had to use flash, I had the Canon. And then anytime otherwise, I was using Sony. Now, a lot of this was in a great big room, and it was a big presentation to over a thousand people that we were shooting. <clears throat> and, it, you know, I don't know if you can picture this, but picture like a big ballroom in a hotel. These things are not lit for photos. So my number one obstacle was ISO. I'm like, what am I going to shoot at? What can I get away with? Now, the stage was lit really well. Well, I shouldn't say really well. The stage was lit. And then they had these monster jumbotron screens up in the front. So we had these humongous screens that probably, uh, I don't even know, 50 yards span. They were huge. So those this is a are, Tony. Were you at Tony Robbins? <laughs> I was at a pretty <laughs> fancy place. Anyway, okay. so there's these huge monitors. There's a stage in the middle, and then there's a thousand people in the audience. So I'm shooting this thing, and I'm trying to figure out how do you deal with ISO. Obviously, there's no way I'm going to get crowd and stage. It's just too dark. But I could get silhouettes to represent the crowd, and then show the audience or show the stage. But it's like I said, it was lit, but it wasn't lit that great. Now, if there's something bright on the monitors that added light so I could 
I could take my ISO down a little bit. But as it turned out, I ended up shooting most everything at like 3200 ISO. I'm not that happy with it. You know, it just to me, I saw a lot of noise. But Even on the R4? Even on the R4. No, I have to say the R4 was much better. Oh, it was. The okay. R4. So I ran the 20, let's see, the 70 to 200 on the R4. Because a lot of times I'm just shooting isolation shots because there might be a, someone up on the stage that I needed to shoot. And we were shooting some high-profile athletes, you know, some pretty famous people. So I wanted to make sure it was as good as it could get. So um, those images where I was in tight, they looked pretty darn good. When I was shooting with the A7R3 at 3,500 and I was shooting wide to just show the, the expanse of this whole big auditorium or ballroom sort of thing, they're going to work. I mean, these images are fine. You see them on a screen. They threw some of those images up on those big monitors, and they looked spectacular. But if you dig in on Lightroom and you're zooming in, it, there's all kinds of noise. You know, They're usable, well, but they're not perfect. So while you were shooting them, you were getting transmitting some of them right then that they could throw them up on the screen? Uh, no, it wasn't immediate. It would be like I would shoot one morning and then the next morning some of those images were used ah, to recap cool. what went on the day before. Nice. Yeah, so that was kind of cool to see. And everybody was like, wow, those images look really great. But I knew from seeing them in Lightroom that, yeah, they're okay. They're, mm -hmm. I, it's nothing I would send to a magazine. You know, really? As far as the noise goes. Now, I probably could run it through a filter or do something a little different, but I, you know, this didn't need to, that didn't need to happen for this. And everything that these people use these images for, it's fine. Because they, they'll never go to print. They'll never get printed at a billboard or anything like that. They may be used printed small or they may be used in a digital presentation. And in that situation, it's going to be just fine. The A7R4, when I was shooting some of these high profile people, tight. Not tight, but at a two hundred, maybe a three quarter body shot. It those those were pretty darn good. I would have to say at thirty two hundred, that wasn't too bad at all. One thing I did notice, so <clears throat> I had to, I had one situation where I had the flash on. I had to shoot flash because I was shooting in this dark room, and it was kind of backstage kind of stuff. I shot with the flash. And then I went from there to go out. And I, a lot of times I would get behind backstage and I would shoot the back of these presenters with this huge crowd. So I wanted to give the impression of how many people are actually in this room. I did it both with the Sony 24-70 and I did it with the Canon 24-70. And I need to go test this because I didn't test it because I was working. I just didn't have time to run a test. But looking at the images, my 24-70... Canon is wider than the 24 to 70 Sony. I know, oh, that's but that's I need to test it just to see. And what mm -hmm. I need to do is just take them both out and just put them in the exact same spot, take a picture and just see. But the only reason I noticed that is I was shooting with this big, huge, well, they had the lights that were lighting the stage and I wanted that, you know, you think of those concert shots where they oftentimes will put the lights, the stage lighting in the shots and you get these cool flares and, I wanted that in these pictures, but I couldn't seem to get wide enough on the Sony to include those lights. But then when I did it, because I just happened to have my Canon, I'm like, well, I don't have time to switch cameras out. I just shot it with the Canon 1DX Mark II. They were there. I could get those lights. 
So that's why I'm thinking it was wider. But it could have just been the place that I was standing. Although, you know, I wasn't more than two or three feet in a different, in you know, from the spot where I used the Sony to where I might have used the Canon. So I don't know. I'm going to do a test, and we can do it when you're coming out here in the next couple of weeks when all three of us get together and just test it out. Right, right. Just jumping from rocks to rocks, wide angles, shots. Yeah, we'll just try it out and see if it's actually different or if it's the same. I don't know. But I, I forced myself to do it. I shot, I don't know. Missy processed them all, so I, I think it was 9,000 or 10,000 images. You know, you end up shooting a ton because you're shooting a bunch of people, and inevitably someone's scratching their ear, someone's looking off into la-la land, you know, someone's, like, doing something dumb, and you just have so many people in the image that you've got to take a bunch that hopefully one of them will work to, to illustrate right. it. So we had a lot, a lot of chances. I used it a lot. I'm not bummed with it. But I'm not like, woohoo, this is it. And then I am okay. so used to looking through a DSLR that yes. I was in my, you know, when I picked up the cannon and I was shooting those big behind the stage shots where I'm shooting the people on the stage, but it's really just the back of their heads and I'm shooting out to the crowd. I felt very comfortable looking through that DSLR. When I would do it looking through the mirrorless and it's that what you see is what you get. Now, that's probably just my own comfort level, just because I've shot DSLRs for so long. I'm just way more familiar and way more comfortable looking through that viewfinder as opposed to the the video viewfinder that you get on the mirrorless. Okay, so that's you're viewing the back of the camera instead of the eye, through the eyepiece. No, all like... of it was through the eyepiece. Because you're still, oh. and the eyepiece on the mirrorless is still the video. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I didn't use the back of the camera. The one thing, I occasionally I would use the back of the camera and that is kind of cool on the on the mirrorless because you got that little monitor that'll flip up. Right. The one DX, nothing flips up, so you're just kind of like stuck there. But this one, I could flip it up, so I could lay it on the floor, just flip it up, and I didn't have sure. to lay on the floor and tilt my head to try to see what I was shooting. So for the new Sony, then are is it? You said you don't love it necessarily, but are. Are you pleased with it? Was it something you you know you'd buy again, or, or you need more testing maybe in the field to know that for sure? Yeah, I definitely want to do more testing. The biggest lens I have, Sony lens I have right now, is the one hundred to four hundred, and I've been using it for wildlife too. It's weird, you know. I'm used to using a two hundred to four hundred Canon. Yes. So to me, I just feel like. Again, it's that comfort zone, right? I just feel so much more comfortable with my 100 to 400 or 200 to 400 Canon than I am with this little dinky 100 to 400 Sony. But I haven't been in that perfect scenario with wildlife yet. You know, I haven't had that perfect shot out in front of me that I could just, that I knew I was getting these quality shots right when I was getting them. I just haven't had that situation yet. So it's going to take some more time. So is the comfort a structural thing? Are you used to just the size of the two to four versus the one to four? Or was there some other aspect of it that's... I think it's all of that. I think it's the the size. I think it's looking through the viewfinder. It's going to be the quality of the images. All of this, I just need to keep testing and keep trying. It's, it's nothing that, you know, if you ask me today, you can only have one camera. Just with the little testing I've done, I would stay with Canon. Oh, really? Okay. 
So especially first, since they just not, uh, they just announced the new Canon One DX Mark Three. Right. So when's that due out? I don't you know. know. I don't think anybody has said yet. They just announced it, but they really haven't put anything out. Yeah, I've heard that for people shooting mirrorless, it does take some getting used to. And, you know, part of my, I mean, I'm happy with the setup I have. And we've talked about that before. The technology is changing so quickly. It's almost impossible to keep up. By the time you buy something, there's something rumored on the pipeline that eclipses that. So I'm happy enough with my setup. I'm not spending the money at this point in time to switch all this gear. But mirrorless people... You know, the, the menu system on the Sony is kind of what I've heard on that and on our podcast and our guests. It's something that I'd like to hear improved before I'd even contemplate that. But people who have made the switch and forced themselves to get through all that seem to really enjoy it. And today, you know, I was on a trip and I was filming, photographing whitetails, whitetail deer in the rut. And I never really pay attention to the, the sound of the of the of the mirror on the DSLRs, you know, it was always kind of an addictive thing that, that you hear the shot going off. But now that I'm thinking of people shooting silent mirrorless, it, it registers to me more. I hear the, brr, 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 and I notice, you know, if, so for instance, if, if a deer is going by and it's focused on another deer and both ears are forward and I want that image with both ears forward and I'm doing a tight shot of its face profile or something. When I go, brr, 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 that one ear comes back to hear the camera. It's changed, you know, things. And I'm like, huh, <laughs> this would be different with mirrorless, but it's the same kind of thing. A, a good friend of ours was texting me today and, and he was like, he's excited about the mirrors. He really liked the last uh, podcast he heard with Darren Carroll and talking about the Sony's, but it's just not enough yet to make him switch either, you know, but other people are, it's just very similar to back when things went from slides to digital. I mean, this new gear is exciting and so many components of it make it, superior potentially to dslrs but you know what point is it worth the investment so it's interesting to hear and i'm you know looking forward when we get together in another week or so and have some fun in the field and you can play with it more there and I look, yeah look actually forward. i'll give it to you guys for a day and you guys can try it out and just take it and see i mean i'd love to compare apples to apples and i think what i'll do nowadays with all these rental companies you can rent a 600 f4 for a pretty modest fee and just try it out you know back in the day you couldn't go and rent anything you could beg canon or nikon to send you one as a demo or something and that happened occasionally but nowadays for like i said not a lot of money i can go rent a 604 or a 4028 and then hopefully be on par with what i'm very accustomed to with the canon and then really give it a go but i have another shoot coming up in florida in december it's a fishing shoot, so we'll be shooting uh, bass fishermen. And this is one where I actually get in the water and I'm getting low and I'm doing all kinds of stuff. I would, if I had to choose the camera system today, I would take my Canon over the Sony. But but it's a, a comfort what, thing. Exactly, it's what you're used to. Yeah, and, and exactly. And comfort, but you're also confident that you're going to come away with what you need for your client because yep. you've done it before. Yeah, so. exactly. That's exactly it. I don't want to get out there and waste a bunch of people's time and money and, you know, and just not get what I wanted. So so it's great hearing about your recent trip with the, trying out the new Sony mirrorless. I'm looking forward to being in the field 
another week or so with you to see you using it. In no, the field. wait, wait. You're not going to see me use it. You're going to use it because I'm going to commandeer your Nikon system and you're going to be relegated to Sony only. And then you can have your own WYSIWYG experience. You know, I, I'm a little excited about that and also not, not so much. I mean, Ron can have I one my and Nikon. you can have one and I'm just going to shoot my cannon and you guys can both be out there fumbling around with the the Sony and just give it a whirl. I'd like to have my WYSIWYG experience with the red. <laughs> well, you can do that too. I'll give you a red and then you can just be as frustrated as I am. <laughs> you know, for our audience members that follow us on Instagram at wild and exposed podcast on Instagram, WYSIWYG would have been a great Halloween story. I hope you caught it people because Thor was out there with the wig in slow-mo for those of you that saw it you know what i'm talking about let's let's be clear though it was uh it was a ronzi wig it was fat thor (laughs) just just so just so we're clear on that it was hilarious it was awesome so yeah we'll we'll try it out next week speaking of new gear right before we started tonight's podcast ron you had asked me if i had seen the super expensive 180 to 400 Nikon lens that obviously in many ways would be superior to the two to 500, but the price point at 10 times the price, you know, has kept me from really looking at it. You asked if I'd used it, seen it, held it, or even touched it. And I said, Whoa, well, why? And you, because you have, so what's the latest on that? Yeah. And uh, to be fair, I have not shot a single image with it. Um, I just had the opportunity to hold it in my hands, to caress it a little bit, and just kind of see what it felt like. And I will say, it does feel like a superior build. Obviously, the zoom is internal. Don't do that, Raycroft. You're going to throw me off. <laughs> the zoom right. is the zoom is internal, just like the Canons. Uh, so it does um, it does have a lot of advantages. I think the glasses. I don't like I said I didn't shoot it at all. The glass is probably obviously a little bit superior to the the one that you and I shoot the two to five. Um, the biggest advantage that I saw is the two to five. You almost when you're going from two hundred to five hundred or going back and forth any iteration in between, you almost have to take it away from your eye because you have to move both hands to zoom that from two hundred to five hundred. The biggest thing that I saw with this lens is the zoom with the internal zoom, you only have to make about a quarter turn. So only about 90 degrees takes you from 180 to 400. Or, you know, if you have the 1.4 activated, obviously, you know, 560, what is it, 340 to 560, I believe. So there is a lot of advantage to that. And I think, Mike, you see the same thing with the Canon. You don't have to rotate it all the way around to be able to go from 200 to 400 with that Canon lens either. Um, yeah, it's the same. It's just a, you know, I can do it with my thumb. You know, I can just yeah. go 200 to 400 really quick. And then it's the same with the 200 to 600 Sony that is internal. It's the same deal. It's only like a quarter turn and you're from 200 to 600. So it must be some way they construct the internal zooms that allows them to to get that motion or that action working. Yeah, and that you know that's another thing that I think both of these camera make the others. Sony's already doing it, 
both of the camera makers are going to be doing is try to simplify. I mean, when they make the these lenses for these larger mounts, I think that that's one of the things that they're going to do is to try to kind of mimic what Sony's done. You know, you take the Canon internal zoom and it's at what eleven, twelve thousand dollars also, and Sony did it with the two to six and at a much much smaller price point yeah but i think that's all the internal zoom you know it is glass that's the aperture you don't have the same aperture yeah for sure yeah but to be clear for our audience so the the more expensive ones have a lower aperture than the sony they have yeah larger glass so it allows more light in right so they're f4s versus was it sony's a five six to six three is that right sliding f-stop yeah no, yeah, it must be five six or maybe even four five six three. I'm not even sure. I thought it was pretty wide. Let's just cover that real quick. Let's for people listening that don't get this stuff. Let's just because people ask me all the time. I'll be out there with my 200 to 400, and it's a big lens, right? Someone that knows absolutely nothing about cameras will come up and say, "Geez, Louise, can you shoot a mosquito on the moon with that thing?" And I'm, you know, I immediately just say, "You know what? It's." The reason this thing is so big is because it's letting a lot of light in. It really is not any different as far as the... I'll even go so far as letting them look through it just so that they realize, hey, this 400, yeah, it's a big lens, but it's not like I'm able to see something. I mean, it helps a ton, right, having a 400, but I'm not able to see like a person walking a dog at the end of the block full frame. You know, it doesn't do that. It's all about the light that is being seen by the sensor of the camera. And that's why they have such a big piece of glass, or that's why it's such a big lens. You know, it's, it's deceiving because people are used to binoculars, and if they have an eight times, a ten times, or twelve times binocular, they're small binoculars that you hold in your hand. But when you see the big telephoto lenses, one automatically assumes it's far more reaching. Whereas a four hundred millimeters equivalent to eight times, a five hundred is equivalent to ten times, and a six hundred is twelve times. So and it, that helps people understand as well. Right. But it makes sense. So the more expensive of these new telephotos have a lower aperture, therefore a bigger piece of glass that allows more light in than the Sony. And the difference or, between a 5.6 and a 4 is pretty significant when you're shooting in low light conditions. And even if you take it down further to a 2.8, I mean, you might get an extra 15 minutes of shooting light. You know, if you're just shooting with daylight in early morning or late evening. The other thing is, is if you're shooting something at night with consistent light, you know, I think I mentioned it on a previous podcast, I had to shoot a baseball game at night and I went and rented a 400-2.8 just so I had that one extra stop going from F4, which I already had and I owned. I went and got a 400-2.8 just because I figured I'd get that much more light hitting that sensor and I get that much better of a picture. So in addition to the light, the other thing it gives you is depth of field. So if you're shooting a 2.8 and let's say you're shooting a, you know, if you listen to Darren's podcast, he's a golf shooter. For golf, it's really important for him to be able to separate his subject from the background. So if he's shooting some professional golfer on a, on a green and as you look, as you watch golf on TV, you'll see there's people that surround that green. Well, you don't want the golfer and these people behind him all in focus because it's hard to separate out that golfer from the background. 
But if you shoot at 2.8, your depth of field is drastically reduced. And you can throw those, all those people out of focus so much so that all you're doing is seeing modeled colors and just shapes back there. And then all the emphasis is put right on that golfer. So 2.8 really comes in handy in those situations. And as a wildlife person, that really makes a difference because you can do the same thing. But then I know, Mark, you have mentioned in a previous podcast where sometimes you like to shoot at F8 or you like to shoot at 6.3 or 5.6 because you want all of the antlers to be in focus, right? Yeah, I, was at, I shot at F16 for some today. Um, but something as far as wildlife and nature photography, anybody who's into small birds, that's another thing where that shallow depth field, that that lower aperture is a game changer for that clean background where they can get that just that flat color of green or, or autumn foliage behind the small bird. So like the golfer, it highlights the subject much better that way for that emphasis and, and for those compositions when that's warranted. But when I was increasing my depth of field today on whitetails, it was when uh, there was this big buck approaching an apple tree, but he wasn't at the apple tree. It was an old abandoned uh, orchard, and, and I wanted the depth of field so the apples didn't just look like faded leaves off in the background. I wanted him sharp, and I wanted detail in the tree so that it would illustrate that he was coming out to this you know, apple tree and just scrounging or feeding what was on the ground there. Or if there are two animals, that's often the time where they're not lined up perfectly perpendicular or par- sorry parallel, not perpendicular, parallel to your plane of the sensor. And so you'll need a little more depth to have both in focus. So if one moose or one caribou is approaching another, but it's four feet off, then that's a time where I'll increase the f-stop or the depth of field to f8 or even higher if light and shutter speed allows for it. So it's always something that's um, elastic in our shooting, depending on what's happening. And that's the fun of wildlife and nature. And and, and the same with, with Darren Carroll's podcast, that, that he can't tell these, these athletes what to do. He's got to move with the flow of what's happening that he's filming. We've had, we have the same kind of challenge and fun experience as wildlife and nature photographers because we, we don't know what they're going to do. We do our best to predict animal behavior and movement, but we have to modify and constantly changing our depth of field um, our ISO, our shutter speed, manipulating all that for the best results and sometimes different results. You know, that awesome picture that Mr. Ron Hayes be- has behind him on the wall where the caribou is on this ridgeline in Alaska, but you can see far off mountains. He's naturally separated from those mountains. But there are, t- and so the depth of field you can get away with, you could shoot at F8 there and it'll still be that separation. But sometimes you'll want to bring detail into the background. Instead of it being faded, you can do both and compare what you want later, too. So that's the fun of photography and the and the importance of so many of our listeners, you know, have pointed out how they've learned manual and all the manual settings and, and the relevance of that when it comes to field work. It's it's very important to understand one's gear and to play with it and get that dialed in, which when I get around to it will kind of lead into my pro tip for this week's podcast. But before we go there, I have to say, you know, Autumn Colors, we had... Here in southern Ontario, we had 60-mile-an-hour winds last night and pouring rain, and it just flipped the switch, and fall colors are done, blowing off, and now everything's fall brown and late season looking. Dusting of snow in the air. I know three hours north, friends of mine have snow on the ground. But we're not anywhere near winter yet, and we're not ready for winter yet. But you guys, this past week, 
of its winter wonderland. What's going on? October 28th, it was 18 degrees below zero Fahrenheit in Douglas, Wyoming. That is January, February temperatures. And it was, it, it took me by surprise because by the time it gets to January, February, your system kind of adjusts to wintertime. But to have it go from 70 degrees and a week later, 18 below, that was a little bit of a shock. <laughs> no kidding. So was that 18 below without a wind chill? That was without a wind chill. Yeah, we're, we're located kind of down Snap on the river. So, you know, the closer to a river you get down in the valley, that cold air tends to sit. And that's exactly what happened. Of course, it was a clear night. So it, it just got really, really brisk. And fortunately, there wasn't much wind because it would have been brutal if there had been any wind at all. Yeah, I, yeah was, that was, I was out shooting today and there's ponds that, for the last few years have never frozen. You know, they just won't, they used to freeze and the last several years they don't freeze. And I pay attention a lot to that because it, when you start getting frozen water around Denver, you can really key in on some waterfowl. Pro tip. Yeah. So I'm always paying attention. And today when I was out, I saw frozen ponds and little lakes all over the place. So it's, and yet I see a post on Instagram must have been yesterday where there were lakes up in Alaska that still haven't froze yet. I was chatting with, uh, you know, just online with a photographer from Anchorage and Jamin Hunter. And I, I had said something about the, the cold temperatures here. He said, yeah, you guys are getting what we would normally get. And up here, we're still almost late summertime temperatures in Anchorage. So that, you know, we talked about, if you listen back to that, uh, podcast that Michael and I did when we were shooting the Eagles um, this spring and Captain Kurt Jackson, we did a podcast with him and he talked about that blob of water off the Southeast coast of Alaska or Southwest coast of Alaska. Excuse me. I hear a lot about that, but it's more down here. We hear more about it in reference to the, the temperatures only vary in a few degrees in that, in that body of water off that southwest coast of Alaska affect the jet stream and how it comes down into the U.S. because typically the weather that we're getting would be a lot, you know, basically Mark would be getting it. And uh, the way that that water affects the jet stream is pushing those temperatures down to us. And and we got a lot more moisture. I mean, it was one of the coolest summers, coolest years so far. And we've had a lot more moisture in Wyoming than we've had in decades um, and that blob is what they're attributing that to and the effect that it has on the weather patterns in the U.S. Yeah, we can get off the weather here, but real quickly, I like I said, I was in Florida last week when it was so cold here. They were having record-breaking highs. They were hitting 90s really? and like 100% humidity. I, didn't, I was at a place for four days and only went outside twice because it was uh-huh. just so miserable. You go outside and you're instantly wet and soaked with sweat or humidity or whatever, whatever it was. So it's crazy. It is really crazy. Don't have that problem right now. No, <laughs> no, it's chilly. Winter is here. So it was, it was a quail, wasn't it, Ron, that you put on your Instagram this week that the snow? Uh, uh, it was a Hungarian partridge. Hungarian partridge. What it was. Yeah. yeah, that was a great image. And, and that's something that you said, the snow, early snow helped you 
collect that image, right? You wouldn't see yeah, it. Yeah, they're in the sagebrush. Those things are almost impossible to see because they're yeah the gray feathers blend with the sagebrush, and then they're they've got kind of an orange or brown uh, coloration as well, and that just blends in with the dirt. So they are very, very, very tough to find, and let alone be able to get a photograph. As we were just talking about separating your subject from you know their background, mm-hmm. you can never get a photograph like that of a hun in sagebrush and grass and dirt because there's no way to separate it. But you get them on the snow, and it's it's pretty striking. Yeah, that was a great image. Go to Ron's Instagram and, and check it out. So we'll roll into this week's pro tips. I'm a little embarrassed about mine, so I don't know if I want to go first. <laughs> I'll go first. All right. Uh, you know, I do so much traveling with photo gear that it seems like every pro tip that I have always involves some sort of travel hack. Um, one thing I have, and I'm going to show you guys, and I'll try to explain it as best I can for our audio listeners. Have you all ever seen these packing cubes? So they make little cubes. uh Eagle Creek was like the first company that I saw that made them. They're really handy. So if you want to, you know, I use duffel bags to pack everything around the country. A lot of, for one reason, it just hides everything. So I can throw Pelican cases in there and I throw it in a duffel bag and nobody's going to look at a grungy looking duffel bag and think there's anything valuable inside of it. But also when you do that, it's really hard to pack clothes correctly in there and keep everything separated. It's not like a traditional suitcase. So we found these packing cubes and I started putting all my, you know, pants in one cube and socks in one cube and shirts in one cube. And it works out really well. I took that one step further and now I'm using these packing cubes that are, it's just basically a little nylon bag that has a zipper and you just throw everything in it. I found some that have a clear vinyl top or plastic top. I don't know what this is, but now I've started putting chargers and stuff inside of them so that it keeps everything in one spot, and then I can look in it really quickly when I'm traveling and say, oh, that's the charger I need. I tend to travel with two or three or four chargers. Maybe most people don't travel with that many, but nowadays you have your extra battery for your phone. You have your phone charger. You have your computer charger. You have your battery charger. You have all kinds of stuff, so I've found that keeping them separated, putting them in these little packing cubes is really valuable and it just keeps everything organized and it just makes it way more efficient when i'm out in the field roll into a hotel room and i know i just pull this out but pull this out and pull this out and on a previous podcast i talked about taking a power supply or a power strip with you so i have the power strip on my power supplies and i'll basically just set up a little charging slash computer station and it works pretty seamless so um we'll put a link to these they're not very expensive these are kind of cheapo ones i don't know how they'll last but i think i spent maybe 20 bucks or 30 bucks on a set of four they come in all different sizes and this one is you guys can see it online here it's pretty handy and i can just put all my chargers in it that's my pro tip who is this guy who is this guy and how does he get all this super efficient stuff going and and discover it and find it i love that and it makes sense. I mean, you're telling me that you don't put your battery chargers in your clean socks to protect them in your bag? <laughs> Stuff everything in socks and wrap your underwear around your gear so that it doesn't get damaged? Used around to. Boots. Yeah. Yeah, I used to. When I'm we kidding. get to, Mark, when we get to 47 million air miles, we'll have all these hacks too. <laughs> all right. This, it comes we'll have experience. this 
clean system down. <laughs> I love it. That makes sense. Yeah, it you works got, really good. Because it's all compartmentalized, right? With the different stuff that you pack for your gear, whether it's your personal stuff, whether it's your toothbrush kit and whatever. Well, and, and you know, can, on yeah. a previous podcast, you were talking about having a problem with you dropped one of your chargers and it quit working, right? And it was just a single battery charger. I've gotten in the habit of buying a dual battery charger for every every camera that I have because mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than having to wake up in the middle of the night. So then you're adding a whole nother charger. I still bring the single one just as a backup. But now that I've got all these um, chargers that aren't necessarily from the manufacturer of the camera, they're just an off-brand charger, but they'll charge two batteries at once. You just got to have a place to put all that stuff and keep it organized. Let me follow that up with a question. So when my, and, and thanks, thanks a lot for bringing that up again. I thought I covered it well enough in the other podcast with the embarrassment of only taking oh. one chart. <laughs> but thanks, Jose, for bailing me out on that trip in Newfoundland. Um, when that happened to me, I went online I, and I was thinking about, you know, if I had to, I'd order a charger right there. Everything online was were aftermarket ones that I found. And so that's what you're using. Do you trust, I mean, as far as just buying these aftermarket ones, and they're different price points too, right? I mean, but they arguably are very similar product, that they would charge your battery just as well as the brand charger that comes. So is that yeah. just what you buy? I, I've had that experience. I've, I'll buy them. I'll buy any kind usually, and I'll just, you know, obviously I'll look at the rating and I'll read a little bit about them just to see if anybody has anything really bad to say about them. I don't know how much you can trust ratings nowadays, but not these are not very expensive chargers, and they seem to work fine. And they all got LED readouts, so you can see if the battery's being charged, number one, and then you can see when it's done being charged. So that obviously is really important to me. But beyond that, I don't know. I couldn't tell you what I paid for this last Sony charger that charges two at once, but I think it's a it's a pretty good way to go, and it's just a fail safe, mm-hmm. and you know you don't have to get up in the middle of the night to charge batteries. Although if you're just shooting stills, you don't run through the bat. I mean, I was able to shoot this last assignment every day. One of these cameras holds two batteries; the other one just holds one. I never had to change batteries, and I have mm-hmm. a whole extra set, so I would have been fine to go two days, maybe two and a half days, if I didn't have any charge at all. But and still, every night I would, when I get back to the hotel room, I would charge, put everything on chargers, and get it mm-hmm. queued up for the next day but packing cubes oh. man use them all right good tip and yeah with the battery on my 850 i go th- on a good day i'll go through it you know it's, it's something that we have to anyway that's a little off topic but yeah ron do you want to go ahead or should i jump out and throw my embarrassment on the on the plate here <laughs> no i kind of i kind of want to leave everybody in suspense i i want to leave myself in suspense so i'll go ahead i'll all go right. ahead and go so in Talking to more and more and more people online, I hear, you know, you, I get in some of these groups. One of them is this, and I've talked about it before, this uh, wildlife and landscape photography for beginners, and it's a beginner group. And so they've asked me to go in and, and kind of answer questions once in a while. So I try to do that. And what these are beginner photographers, and what people want to do is take people from beginners right to advanced techniques right away and they you know you talk about the rule of thirds for instance or you talk about composing so that your subject is moving into the frame 
So if you look at a lot of Mark's environmental portraits, the subject is looking from right to left. So he leaves space or leaves negative space on the left side of the frame. So it gives the impression to the viewer that it's showing you what that animal is, is looking at. And it's a, you know, it's a common technique. We talk about these rules and quote unquote rules and inevitably somebody chimes in, well, rules are meant to be broken and yes, they are. But what I would say is if you're a beginning photographer, learn the rules first, because if you learn the rules, then you're going to start to develop the ability to know when those rules can be broken. You don't always have to have the animal looking into the frame. If you've got, say, a fox in Yellowstone that's walking across the snow, you might leave more negative space behind that fox as long as those tracks tell part of the story. So there are, there are definitely times to break the rules. There are times where you don't want to use a third or put that animal on a third there are times where you want to give them more space or you want to bring it in tighter and give it less. But learn the rules first. Give yourself that opportunity to learn and then decide when those rules can be broken. And that is a very vague pro tip. But the more and more and more I hear from people, and you always have somebody that wants to jump them right into the advanced stuff, I think that is important, an important thing to remember. I agree. I think their portfolio will grow faster and be a much stronger portfolio if, if they train their eye with, with those rules per se first. And then, I mean, there's always that opportunity to be creative on any photo shoot and especially with wildlife when time permits, when a subject sticks around, experiment, be creative, try different angles. And then that's the joy also social media, social media, where you can look at so much imagery now online, Instagram and stuff like that too. There are very talented photographers that by looking at their pages, you know, can train one's eye to new compositions and, and techniques too. But that's, yeah, there's no rush to it, right? It's mm -hmm. enjoy the process, enjoy the learning. And, and yeah, that's a good tip. All yeah, right, I like that tips. Skip my tip for this week. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've talked about the importance of having a good monitor to edit on. And the more serious you become in photography, the more important that is, the more relevant it becomes. So many people are just, you know, at a talk I gave recently, you know, they're just on standard basic PC monitors, no color calibration, no monitoring that whatsoever. You know, it's, it's a wish and a prayer and maybe things are okay. And it's a good way to test, of course, is by posting it or do, if you're on a Mac, which usually are pretty close, you can airdrop it to different devices and make sure that the colors are uniform throughout. And the same can be done on, on PC systems where you can just, you know, email it to yourself and look at it and different things for testing. So I've preached about this and the importance as a professional because I want to make sure that what I edit as far as all the elements of an image, when I send that to a client, I want it to have the most impact possible. I want it to look exactly like I feel like I finished with it on the screen. And it's still a challenge. You know, I, I, I'm blown away by the versatility and, and accuracy of smartphones. And when we take an image on there and how quick the software 
on these apps or built into the phone that we can manipulate and change. Even the Instagram software that we can work on images and color. There's so many attributes that can be played with. Or you can have Lightroom and stuff right on your phone. Mind-blowing how easy it is. But when we shoot raw and then work it through our workflow, our process on our monitors, we need to make sure that image, and I see a lot of photographers out there, I, I look at the image and I know it has more potential than where they finish with it. Now here's where the embarrassing part comes. So we talked about on the podcast uh, quite a while ago. So a year and a half ago, I upgraded, I got the iMac 5K uh, desktop, and that's what I do my work on. I had MacBook Pro for traveling, my portable office. That's so important for anybody in photography to be able to communicate and send images from any destination. But on my desk, I wasn't personally happy, content with what I was getting off my iMac because it doesn't, doesn't have enough of an Adobe RGB color gamut representation. I was using a Lacey monitor before that for about eight years, and the Lacey was dialed right in. But after eight years, I, I lost trust in it because I know monitors shift over time. They have a lifespan. And I was thinking, you know what? I can't keep using this Lacey. I've got to switch it up. So when I got the iMac, I tried that for better part of a year, and I wasn't happy with what I was seeing on other systems of my finished product. So I've talked about this in the podcast before. I went and bought an ISO, which has been – uh, business standard in photo editing for a long, long time. And they have many different versions and monitors available now. The one I bought was the Steadfast one. It was the uh, uh, Color Edge 277, I believe is what it is. And it's a little bit pricey, but it was, it was 3200 Canadian, I believe, I paid for it. But when you're a professional, and it's important it has a 99, 98 or 99% representation of the Adobe RGB color gamut from edge to edge. That's why it's called color edge as well. It doesn't drop off as you get close to the edge of the image. All right. This monitor also has its own calibration tool built in. Love that, right? The Lacey, I had one of those spiders. Uh, you could hang on the monitor, hung halfway down, put it in the center, and has software you down load onto your system and it calibrates your monitor and i still had to do some custom stuff when i use the spider and there's also the ambient lighting all these variables that have to be done when you set and calibrate your monitor when i bought the iso i plugged it into the imac got it going both are running it's like i love it i've got two monitors that helps me with my workflow i can have a folder open on the imac to my left the iso straight in front of me that's my editing monitor they plugged in, they're working. The little doodad came up and calibrated the monitor. It just pops up like a little finger puppet on the screen. It's like, up, 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 I'm done. I'm like, we're off to the races. All right. And I edited for months and months. And I still wasn't 100% happy with the results. You know, and I have to, it's important. There's so much competition in this industry. The work has to be as good as it can be so what's going on so i did this is where today's pro tip falls into place the school of youtube now you can't necessarily trust everything you see on youtube but when you sample a variety of sites when you do a search so i typed in the iso uh, color edge 277 calibration i wanted to know about the proper ambient lighting 
in the room and it should be dark uh, to do this or quite dark, darker than the monitor is bright and not to have any strong other colors going on in the room that throws it off. That was one. But as I watched some of these YouTubers uh, and, and even the company themselves saying this is how you do it, I did the typical guy thing. I unpacked this monitor. I plugged it. I played with it and we're going. No questions asked. It's got to be right. I don't want to read the manual. It looks good. The screens are talking. It, the little doodad came up, calibrated, we're off. Not so. Not so. <laughs> so after watching these things on YouTube, I watched two or three, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. There was supposed to be another whole cable attaching these monitors. It needed two cables. <laughs> then I had to download software from ISO from their website, which the monitor that I bought, I can't remember now. Well, it's been better part of a year. There's a whole new version out since I bought it. So I downloaded that, and that is where the calibration takes effect through. On the monitor itself, and this is where I went wrong, there's this great little menu on the bottom right corner with these buttons, and you hit menu. So it's like programming the back of your camera. Hit menu. These options come up, and I hit some kind of calibrate button, and I thought it was doing it. You know, the little doodad came up, but that wasn't it. You have to download the software, activate the software, tell the monitor to cali color calibrate then, and then the little doodad comes up, and when it comes up, all these different colors go in front of it, and it takes like 15 minutes, and, is, and it did it properly. So my pro tip is with our gear, no matter what it is, with cameras, with action cameras, with digital cameras, and today specifically with color calibrated monitors, which for those of you that are serious about photography, it's something to think about. We spend a lot of time on these trips, a lot of money, a lot of money on the trips, travel, a lot of money on gear. We, it's our passion. We want our images to look as wonderful as they can be. It's important that the monitor that you edit on is properly color calibrated and a good monitor to represent and this business standard is Adobe RGB 98. It's the color spectrum that you want to use, not sRGB for editing print purposes. So look into when you get new equipment, or maybe this even goes in before that, for researching new equipment, go to YouTube, watch a bunch of clips. Don't necessarily believe in the first one you watch, but watch a bunch of them, get the feel, the gist of what you're looking for. And when you have that equipment, as far as how to set it up properly, avoid doing the, the dude thing and just plugging it and running with it and look into it because this stuff's too important to just do it on a whim. So I've learned over the past week and after Newfoundland, the podcast is coming. Well, actually, the podcast will be out by the time you hear this. Go back and listen to it if you haven't already about the latest Newfoundland trip. I've been editing all the Woodland Caribou this week after dark when I have time to prep for the show notes for that podcast. But I'm doing it now on the ISO that's properly calibrated. Thank goodness. So that's my question. How much difference is there between what you did for the last, say, six months to what you've been doing currently on the properly calibrated monitor? Well, I'm, I don't think it's huge, but I'm, it's, it's something that's going to take time for me to totally visually assess. I'm not going to believe that it's perfect right away. I know that it was a much more thorough calibration and just 
the functionality, how it did it. And in a, it, I had to search so much on the internet and on YouTube for ambient lighting. It rarely got covered, you know, and, and it was something that happened to me when I had the Lacey. When I first bought the Lacey monitor, it was around $2,000. And again, eight years ago or so, its calibration was slightly off. And it wasn't until I, I took some images into a print shop. It was a local shop that unfortunately is a mom and pop one that's not open anymore. But this lady had worked in photography her whole life. And she's like, your reds are low. I'm like, what are you talking about? My reds are low. I have a professional monitor. My reds aren't low. I'm a little defensive, this professional guy. And, and she's like, no, your reds are low. So I went back and I'm like, I look in my office. And I'm like, wait a minute. I have red curtains. And when I calibrate this, that threw off the calibration. So then I op- I did it so the curtains had no impact in the dark. And then I shifted the red a bit. I took it back and everything from that point for years, I never touched it. It was dialed in. But again, the shift can happen. And that's why I switched to, after, you know, another seven years or so to the ISO. And the ISO is very interesting that you can set its own calibration. So it does it every week. You just set the time when you want it to do it and it'll do it automatically. So it's a very user-friendly monitor, but it's just a matter of knowing the proper procedure. And I didn't know that out of the gate. I assumed it was straightforward. And it is, but I needed more. I needed to download the software and I needed that other cable connected, which was, I don't know why it was functioning well, but with the two, it didn't recognize it. I downloaded the software and it said that I still needed to connect the second cable. So when I did that, as soon as I connected it, and this one was just a USB cable, the other one was not, it was a different attachment, but this just plugged into USB. Then it recognized it, activated this new software and would go through the calibration, but it's relevant. So especially for people who are going from serious amateur to wanting to sell their work, it's important that your work has them as much impact as possible for whoever you're showing it to. And it, to me, my monitor is as important piece of equipment as anything else I use. This is as important as my camera, as my lens, the integrity of that monitor, because that's the output that the rest of the world gets to see is when I'm finished with that. It's the last stage. I don't want to compromise that. So live and learn. It's a lot and like life. Oh, go ahead, Ron. Life. Well, I was going to say, this is probably as far as our pro tips, pro tips have gone. This is probably the most applicable to the rest of, the, of life of anyone that we've ever had. And that is never trust the little doodad. <laughs> but the little doodad is how it calibrates. It just needs it needs to be out there for more than a few seconds. It's got to stay out there for fifteen minutes and do the whole thing. Do the software, but yes, don't don't trust. Yeah, all right, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, and I think your point of not just watching one YouTube video, you've got to watch three or four because when I got these Sony's and you look, I was really interested in figuring out the menu so i watched one and i'm like oh yeah that's good that's good i'm writing all these notes and i'm making the adjustments and i thought well i'll just watch a couple more you watch a couple more and it's a whole this person has a whole different take on it and then you watch that and you're like oh well that's a good idea that's a good idea i'm gonna assign this button to do this and i'm gonna do this and this but then that negates what the last person said and then you watch another one and it's even different so not that you're going to to do what one person says, but it gives you a good idea what the possibilities are. You want those overlaps, right? You want the information that overlaps between them. And then you know that you can probably trust that. Yep. 
when you hear it again and again and again, it's either for, as a procedure to follow or tips on how to use it. If it's mentioned in, in the, several of them, then it's probably sound, yep. one would hope. And ISO is, for those of you that are interested in research, and no affiliation, but it, it's spelled E-I-Z or Z in Canada, O for the monitors. And B&H has them, you know, high-end photography places have them. They're, I think they have a 4K version now. I'm not sure how that compares to the uh, the 277 color edge that I have as far as the Adobe price. 98 uh, color spectrum being 98 or 99. But Yeah, price-wise, it's about twice as much as the 277. Mm-hmm. I did look at that, but... It's All one right, of those so, things, it's like, uh, you know, you don't spend enough money on your tripod, but it's mm-hmm. just as important as the camera. You don't spend as much money on your monitor, but you know what? It's just import- as important as the camera. You just, there's just these things that you just should, it's not sexy to own a cool tripod or own a cool monitor, but it's just as important. Well, you think about these mirrorless cameras and, and the, the saying, what you see is what you get. When you have a good quality monitor, what you see is what you get. When you have a cheap monitor, that's not necessarily the case, right? Yeah, so knows? there's so many elements to an image that we work on in Lightroom, in Photoshop. We magnified 100%, you know, tweak this, tweak that to make it as striking as it can be with colors and contrast. And actually, we didn't talk about this. I'm going to throw this out there. Just there's, I updated, <laughs> this is another embarrassing thing. So obviously with, with Adobe subscriptions, um, it's an annual thing and it switched years ago and I have that, but even though I was online, I had not updated the desktop and I think I was using, uh, Adobe 2017 and I just updated that in the past month to 2019, but I had updated it on my MacBook pro. I wanted them both to be the same in camera raw. There are so many more options now with, 2019 compared to 2017 now we can do a whole podcast on this i am not an expert on this but i'm so stoked at some of these new tools all right mike just dropped his head and fell off his chair all right so yeah i mean it's just it's a i get a new camera raw off of adobe a lot you know just this new camera wouldn't be lightroom couldn't see the images until i updated camera raw and so these new tools yeah for what you spent uh, who 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 knows how many clicks to get something done before is now just a slider. Yes. You know, so you're going to be able to be way more efficient in your workflow. But I'm not laughing at you. I'm just laughing at this whole oh, process because it just keeps getting better. But you definitely have to stay on top of this. But then I'm I'm the guy that you don't want to go too fast into the new software because there's always these bugs. You got to kind of let it wait a little bit, but you can't wait a whole year but you're better off to wait two or three months. And then, you know, we're very, very selective when we do it here, especially with video, because if you're, if you're compute, like if you upgrade to the new Catalina or whatever the new software is for Mac, then Premiere might not work quite like it used to work. And then if you have an old project that was edited in an old version of Premiere, and now you try to open up in the new version and then it says, oh, well, you'll never be able to open up this project in the old version if you do this. I mean, it's just all kinds of things that go into that. But it's always best to wait till version, you know, if it's 24.0, wait till 24.3 or 24, you know, that's just, I'm just throwing numbers out there. But 
it's always best to wait for those little iterations that are just small tweaks after it's been out for a while and people are like, oh, this doesn't work. Well, it's not much to fix it, but it was just something they probably overlooked when they made this new piece of software. <laughs> okay. So I love the sliders because it's user-friendly, just like on our smartphones. And and I we may have to revisit this on a future podcast. And maybe we bring someone in. I don't know. but Or maybe you guys already know this because you've played with it already. Texture, clarity, and dehaze. Three new sliders. What do they do and why would we love them? As a wildlife photographer, I think that texture slider was huge because there was there were people, including, you know, Charles Glatzer, who we've had on the podcast before. He would go make a complete uh, what do you call them? Crap. Sorry, Lair? I just had a brain fault. No, uh, an action. So he would create an action. And when he painted over a portion of an image, it would basically Sharpen. lighten lighten the edges, but darken the shadows. So basically what it did is it made feathers and hair just completely pop in that in that area. And the texture slider does exactly that. How far do you go though? Do you go you go three, four, ten, twelve, fifteen? How far do you play with that without yeah. any image I, impact? Or does everything everything impacts your image? So you start with a raw file. Mm-hmm. Anything you do to that image, and every raw file needs processing to some degree. Definitely. But I think, you know the focus should be getting it right in camera. And if you get it right in camera, you have less to do afterward. And then it's just those really fine tweaks that are going to make different parts of the image pop rather than having to go in and completely, you know, lighten your image by two stops. That's going to have some serious degradation on the quality of the image that you have. And so this, this texture slider, in my opinion, it's fantastic, especially for birds and for mammals that are closer because you get that hair detail. So if you do get that, you know, nice profile or, or nice portrait of a deer or a moose or an elk, you're going to get a lot more detail out of that hair texture. You and can I think see. that's where just subtly. Yeah. You, sorry, Ron, to interrupt, but you that's can okay. see when somebody does too much on Instagram. You can see when somebody's just taking that texture slider and went way to the right. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's just in moderation and you just do it slow. And then, you know, maybe a lot of times, you know, Lightroom, you can make a, God, what's it called? When you make a carbon copy, it's not a carbon copy. Um, when Basically, you take your it's raw like image, duplicate. you basically make a duplicate. A lot of times I'll make like five duplicates and then I'll try different levels on each one of them. And then I'll look at them side by side because I want it to be as true as what I saw. I'm not trying to enhance it more than what, I, what is reality. There's a lot of people that do that. That's trending. There's a lot of that. Yeah, that it definitely. Texture, cold feel is trending right now. Right? Yeah. And that's the good thing about having a copy because you can get that look. You can get that cool, raw kind of, but then you can also have your, another one that, you know, may be better for this client would like this, but this client might like this. And I think anything for Instagram, you can go way more than you would ever do if you're going to send it to somebody for print. Sure. Right. 
But dehaze, I use dehaze a lot. I never use clarity. I never, ever sharp. If my image isn't sharp, I don't bother. If I can't see just every eyelash or whatever, I just don't even bother with it. Um, sure. But texture I'll so use, dehaze. Purely sharpness. Clarity is purely a sharpness tool. But it's okay. not as it's not as evident as like the sharpness tool. You know, it's a lot. You know, remember back when everybody used to use unsharp mask, and you would. It's, well, hold on, that's all I use. Yeah, it's it's, it's kind of just, that a little bit. I only use know. unsharp mask, and what I do is I rarely do the whole image. If you know, maybe in ten percent of the images that I edit that I want to keep, if it's not, it might be ninety percent sharp. Most of them are sharp. That's not an issue nowadays with the gear. When used properly, sharpness should not be a problem. But once in a while, due to movement of myself or the animal, there might be an image that's just a bit off. I'll just highlight the eye or the face, and I'll do an unsharp mask on that, and that fixes it enough, right? That's still a, my strategy for for working that. So I, clarity, I was Clarity's just going to do it. And you can do the same thing in Lightroom where you just paint that little part of the image and you just want to apply the clarity to that part. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think you could, you, with your six months of editing, you could cut that to two months if you use Lightroom. If you went and took a class to figure out how everything you're doing in Photoshop relates, okay, now it's all in Lightroom, but how do I do it in Lightroom? And your workflow would just get faster. I mean, you're sure. still going to get the same results. You I don't just, think I've ever heard this from you before. <laughs> you would just make it faster is all you would do. This week. You you know, you'd be proud of me. I think in the past two days I've done a hundred caribou. That's pretty <laughs> Okay. All right, yep. there's the answer. No, right. I mean, yeah, I mean that's good. I but see, I don't process quite like you do. I don't I mean you you are very, very dialed into getting the right image to the right client. And I don't right. my clients aren't that way. My clients are different. So I think what you do is exactly spot on what you got to do to make them happy. But I think you would find your workflow. It would just speed up your workflow. Oh, anything to make things simpler or more efficient. You know, I'm on board. We shoot more and more. I mean, 10,000 images on a trip or even a, a big day in the fields, two or 3,000 images. Anything to speed that up and not compromise quality, definitely have to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean it's worth it. I mean it'd probably be it'd be worth it for you to do a go to an actual like that's what I did. I did a three day intense workshop just in Lightroom from somebody right. that was just knew his stuff. And this is back I don't even know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. But I really felt like it it made a difference. And then Missy went to the same class. Right. So I don't know. I, I think it would that's what it would do. I think you're gonna get the same results. You're going to speed it up and the list, I'm just throwing numbers out. If you just take six months for editing, you might cut that to three. And then now you got three months to either sit in a hammock and swing a lot or go shoot. What? What is that? <laughs> what is this behavior you talk about? <laughs> sit in a hammock and swing. Oh. So just to close to what uh, dehaze then, what does that tool do with that slider? I mean, it, it seems to have this dramatic effect on the image. If you go the most post. dramatic thing that I find is let's say you shoot an image in the fog or in the shade, or I mean fog yes. or smoke, it almost eliminates that fog or that smoke, which a lot of times we don't want to do. We're taking images because oh. we want that fog or we want that look, right? Yes. <clears throat> but 
I don't know. Do you have a good explanation for it, Ron? I know when I want to use it, and I know which images I want to use it on, and I know how much I use it, but I don't quite know what it's actually doing to the image technically, or what it might be change what what it might be replacing in the old days of Photoshop or in the in the current tools in Photoshop. What is that a combination of? I think it the main thing that it does is it bumps the blacks. So you're when you dehaze your you're darkening the image when you go drastically, not, you know, not just the subtle changes that we've been talking about. It's going to darken the image, but it also adds a little bit of saturation. So if you take an image that's, that's a little bit light or maybe just a little bit overexposed, third or two thirds of a stop overexposed, if you add the dehaze, it also adds a saturation back in. It doesn't just, you know, rather than messing with the exposure, you add the dehaze and it's, it, it does several different things, but I don't know what those exact. We need to get a guy yeah, from Adobe, should. guy yeah. from Adobe on here, and just get some explanations to some of these. But it it is a good tool, and and it's Pretty one harsh. that you can almost start with, yeah, depending on what changes you're looking to make in the image. But. So this week's podcast is about questions, and we've already got rolling. We didn't even start into yeah. I just I've had questions because now we have some of our own. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and we're always learning, and and the tools keep changing, and the technology is changing, and we want to make the best of it, quality and workflow, like Michael was saying. So, I mean, you have to keep asking questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, even as a professional, I have so much to learn, and and the new equipment, you know, as we hear from other guests who are shooting mirrorless is it's so exciting to hear these capabilities but it's a learning curve to stay stay abreast of it so hopefully you know as we learn and share that and have guests on that can help us then our audience can pick up on this stuff too and and get up to speed on it and help them move along in their projects too so what do we got for questions that we'll roll with with today's podcast you know some of them are really it kind of speaks to what we're talking about today. And actually, Ron's tip really relates to this particular question. And it's one that we just never got to on the last podcast that we did this with. But basically, this question, can't, what it says is, what makes an image stand out? And what do you look for when taking a photo? That is so, you know, it's that's such a big question, right? And it's so, you could do a whole podcast on just that. And we've done it before. But it's not going to hurt to go through it again. And um, I think we all have those things that we wanted that we look for to make an image stand out, right? We know that we want eye shine. We know that we want the the light to our back. We know that we want to be lower than the eyes of the animal. We know that we want all these things. That's just kind of where you start. But then you can take it a million ways from there. And I think we've touched on so many aspects of that just talking up to this point in the podcast. Yeah. And I, good. Is it? yeah, if you look through, if you look through a lot of these photo contest images, the ones that stand out, you have one of a few different things. We're going to talk about photo contests. Well, photo contests, oh. photo sites, whatever. Okay. You have okay. one of a that. few different things. You either have great light or you have a very rare, behavior that people are captioning or capturing or you have a really rare subject i mean if you look at and i've said this before i think when we had shane mcguire on i said 
you know, most of the images of snow leopards were taken with camera traps or even trail cameras. Um, the, the wild snow leopards. It doesn't really matter the quality of light. It doesn't really matter what behavior because the subject is so rare, so incredibly rare that the image is going to stand on its own merits. Just having an image of, you know, in focus of a snow leopard. If you look at a more common subject like a white-tailed deer or a moose or an elk, you want to have either the behavior or the fantastic light to accompany that. And that's going to make that image stand out quite a lot more. And there are obviously are a lot of technical aspects of capturing that image as well that are going to make it stand out more. But those two things become more critical when you have a common subject. Mr. Raycroft. You had your well, arm up. Yeah, that's that's my subject's gone though. I was gonna it's, when talking about Shane. She put up a I think a southern right whale the other day and Wild Compass Tours, a great rare image of such a magnificent mammal. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Shane and go back to her podcast if you haven't heard it. It was a great one. But I think that was bang on, Ron. You know, with the rare subjects, you can get away with that. But if you can do those rare subjects in good light and something else, you know, as far as light to our back. When you can do it properly, shooting with that sun flare is more and more popular nowadays as well when you can get that. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, a good image start, if it's not sharp, it's not anything to me. When it comes to professional, to printing, to marketing, if it's not sharp, it stops right there. It gets deleted. I mean, it, obviously, there's some minor tweaking that can be done to correct images that are just off a little bit to bring them within acceptance. But if it's not sharp and then light an animal's eye, yeah, that's critical. We all need to see their soul. Composition's important. Training one's eye for composition. There's so many, yeah, it's such a general subject. But what we look for, dramatic action, you know, portraits are nice. Portraits in nice light can be incredible, can be moving, but nothing resonates as cells as well as action that illustrates behavior. So if somebody wants to sell images to, for editorial purposes to, it's got to illustrate a behavior, tell a story, not just be a statue there. I mean, there's place for that people, you know, whether it's large prints or even publication or any market, there's place for portraiture, but dramatic action is something that I always shoot for. And I remember one of our first podcasts where Michael talked about an animal moving with that, that four leg up, whether it's a bear's paw, whether it's a elk's hoof, that it's just showing that hint of movement. When I will take the portrait and then I'll wait until it, the animal just starts to move. And that's the image I like most. And so with the caribou in Newfoundland happens so often. I mean, the stag would stand still, stand still, stand still for minutes. And then it's like, then he'd engage and he'd pursue a a doe or a female. And as soon as he engaged, his head lifted up, his antlers tipped back, his hoof comes up. Caribou have such cool hooves, you know, that allow them to navigate the terrain that they live in, in the tundra, to illustrate that. So there are those elements, as a photographer, you want to illustrate straight behavior as well as color and proper lighting so that's my two cents is to focus on i remember one of the magazines that i started working with in the very beginning and that's what the editor said he received so much portraiture he said for me to get in and be a game changer 
all he wanted was behavior. Now, this is one editor's perspective, but I took that and made sure that I had behavior for everything I sent to him. So it would follow up on that. Before before Mike responds to that, I just want to throw out. Uh, so if you're on Instagram, go to Teton Trail Photography. We're talking about this action and we, we always talk about being in front of the subject so you're not shooting the animal's butts. But I sent this image to Mike and Mark this week because it's just a, a bare butt shot. But it's the best bare butt shot I've ever seen just because of the action that's going on at the same time. So Teton Trail Photography on Instagram. Uh, John Blumenkamp shot this image. And if you go down, it's right now, it's probably... 10 or 15 images back on his page by the time this podcast airs. Uh, but it's three, it's a grizzly sow with two cubs. They all have the same pad, same foot up, but they're walking away from the camera, but it's still one of the better images that, that I've seen in a while, but it, it kind of demonstrates that action also action and behavior. And successfully breaks the rules. It, exactly. Yeah. It's all subjective, right? So it doesn't, there's no right or wrong to any of this, but there is a right or wrong to knowing what images will probably get used in a magazine or what images will be illustrated or illustrate a story or work on a movie poster or whatever it is. I mean, you kind of know what image is going to be required for that. But based off of what we admire, I mean, we could throw up some examples um, and just say hey this is good stuff just you know and and i think you could go to everybody's instagram account and say well yeah 90 percent of these are good there's 10 percent that i don't like but again it's subjective so that might be a good way to just give somebody an idea of what we look at every every image buyer whether it's somebody for their house whether it's an editor for a publication they all have different tastes and perspectives and you know we put out what we think they'll like, and I think an accurate estimate would be half the time I'm right. Half the time they pick the shots that I I guess they would like. But the other half is like, wow, really? This one was there, but you picked this one. It's like, okay, I'm happy with it because I'm still being paid, and it still helps me do what I love. But we get those surprises, and and it's – but that's in in the business side of it it's important to understand these different markets and different biases of, of these photo buyers, no matter who it might be, they all have their tastes and their preferences. And that's, that's, that's actually, you know, it's a trade secret, honestly, is to know what your clients are looking for. It's naive and egotistical just to assume that they're going to like what we like. But if you look at the track record and the style that they go with, they have a style. And it's important to training one's eye to creating the images that we like to see in the business world, whether it's fine art galleries, there's a look that, and of course, rules are meant to be broken. And when they're broken successfully, it can go off the charts for success on a sale. But for the most part, by following those rules for those templates, that's what makes a difference to these clients. Hey, not I can't to change the subject. I, I'm out for every other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you were talking about when the the hooves click on these caribou, or you were oh, actually talking about the the uh, hooves and just how awesome they are. But 
Do you know mm-hmm. why they click? Okay, well, it's it's the bones, and I meant we were Pilly and I, and we had these days with them. It's just wonderful to hear it and just imagine it in these large numbers. But you know, my quick answer is I don't know. But they're looking it up. I don't know the biology as to why they click. I just read it on Instagram the other day. What Throw a powerful it. tool! And I don't know. She the the woman that put it up there. She's like, I don't know if this is actually why it is, but it totally makes sense. When they're traveling across the tundra, and it's foggy. And they can't really pick up every other animal in the herd. They, those clicks just keep the herd together. So it's that audible sound that just helps them stay in a group as they're navigating from wherever to wherever. It's that click. That's one of the schools of thought. And I thought that that's pretty interesting because I've heard it so many times. And, you know, mm-hmm. you wonder. And they said it was some sort of, I think it's a tendon or something that, I don't know. I've got to look it up. You got to find it out. We have to find out now. Yeah. But it's pretty, I mean, it would totally make sense because if you're in some sort of nasty storm up in the, the Arctic somewhere and. Well, it was windy. You wouldn't hear it, but if, yeah, like you say, anything else foggy. Yeah. As Ron likes to say, stand by. (laughs) (laughs) Stand by while we look. Well, you look that up. I'm going to throw out just the next. It is. It is due to tendons. Hang on before you throw out the next question, Mike, I, this is something that I always tell groups that I'm speaking to or, you know, in a workshop, that kind of thing is it doesn't, your subject doesn't really matter as much as the behavior in the light. But when, when great light meets a willing subject, I think it's the photographer's obligation to immortalize the moment. You, that's what you're there for. You've got to capture it. That's yeah. The that's you the rush. Be proficient enough to get that capture it which comes with just thousands of pictures thousands of clicks and lots of mentoring and lots of mentoring all right wikipedia's got some info on caribou this is interesting caribou are even named after their feet the word caribou is believed to come from the micmac word axolu which is X-A-L-I-B-U, which means parer or shoveler. Although caribou are generally silent animals, they may make a unique clicking sound, sort of like castanets when they walk. The sound is due to tendons that roll around a small bone on their foot or hoof. Now, young calves do not click. This holds for reindeer and caribou, and thus for the porcupine caribou herd. Um, No one knows what age they start clicking, according to this. All right, let me read on. That's a job for you, Ron. You can follow them to figure out what age they start clicking. Right. I'll see you in a couple years. (laughs) You can hear it from, you know, 20, 30, 40 yards away. Yeah. Audibly. Yeah. Snap, snap. Click, 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 click. And uh, even with just one animal, you can hear it. Well, okay, Mike. This in the interest of keeping this going on, let's just do let's just do one more question because it relates to the last question. Okay. And because we're already an hour and twenty minutes into this thing, and this one just came in recently from you, Ron. I don't know who put it up there, but it. Totally relates to what we were just talking about. How did you know when your images are good enough to go pro? 
Or how do you know when your images are good enough to go pro? And somebody starts to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not your mother. I think Mark's answered this many times through an example of what somebody, his mentor told him early on. It's like, you know, if you don't have three or four or 5,000 images to pull from, if you have 40 good images, you're not good enough to go pro. But if you have thousands of images that meet the standards of what your market is asking for, then you're good enough to go pro. I don't know. That's one thing you've put out there, Mark. Well, but what it, okay, so we've got to define what pro is too. And I don't want to get into this too much because everybody loves doing wildlife and nature photography and people, you know, for the serious photographers, everybody should try and recoup some of their expenses. There are many markets and ways to do it. Um, when to start doing that, I think, is when there's a portfolio that justifies it, whether it's doing shows, whether it's publication. There's there's so much out there, whether it's just doing their own calendar and selling it. There's and Without itemizing the hundreds, if not thousands, of markets there are for photography, it's just a matter of starting when somebody feels their images are of quality enough that other people will buy them. That's the litmus test to get going. Try something on within reason, within budget, and see how that goes. For those that are good, and it's not just the quality of photography, it's the personality, it's the salesmanship, it's the marketing, it's the efficiency of the delivery, it's the agreeable, friendly nature of the person. All these things play into one's success. When you try it and there's some measure of success, odds are with persistence that will expand. As far as what's being pro, I mean, it's such a sliding scale nowadays. But to me, it's always been somebody that derives their income from photography. That's where somebody's a professional. Trying to go pro, there's that, there's that spectrum. If somebody's a great or a good photographer and wants to try it, and I've met so many who have the talent, even recently, try a market that interests you and see how it goes. Learn from it. Talk to people who do it. Have a mentor. Figure out the rules of the business, the way to engage ethically and effectively to protect your images, to be paid fairly, and see if it grows. If it grows, that's only going to be a motivator to keep trying more and expanding, and then potentially it will become a profession. You know, I was super fortunate that I tried it at a young age. I was in just finishing school as a biologist and switched when I graduated and focused on wildlife photography for a whole bunch of reasons I won't get into. But if you dig, you'll find it on previous podcasts or on YouTube. It was the timing that I was had good fortune. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't need a nine to five job. I didn't have any dependents relying on income uh, to provide for. So I was able to follow my passion wholeheartedly and i feel so blessed that i discovered that at a time that i had that flexibility and i was able to commit not all my time i had to work around it but a lot of my time to building a portfolio that's tricky when people get into a lifestyle a mortgage nine to five job and financial commitments Patience then is required where you develop your portfolio when you have time that you can do so you test markets whatever they might be, and there are many out there, 
to see how well they sell. And then hopefully it grows and expands and you can continue to devote more time to this passion and its development to perhaps when it is a self-sustaining income. When it's a slow process, it doesn't, you know, I, I don't know anybody it happened overnight for it's, it's building the portfolio. It's, it's establishing a reputation for that niche of photography and, and being able to market. That's the other thing. I mean, I've met known, I've known many wonderful people who were very, who were or are very talented photographers, but were not engaged in marketing. That's a whole other aspect as well. You know, the salesmanship, the ability to do that well factors in. And it depends on, again, the venue and how that is handled. So, I mean, that's something on a podcast, you know, whether you're doing shows, whether you're doing print exhibits, whether you're doing galleries, whether you're doing editorial, whether you're selling to a client halfway across the world, they all have to be handled differently as far as how to effectively market to that, those market, those venues or, or selling points. So anyway, it's, it's not, it's not a black and white answer. You can't, you can't, I don't know anybody who just said I'm going pro tomorrow unless they had the privilege <laughs> that they just got out of school again. They had no dependents and they had the portfolio. You have to build the portfolio and it is more challenging than it ever has been because the world is inundated with quality photography. So first and foremost, do it for the love of it. Do it for the time in the outdoors. Do it for the time with the animals in the environment, the smells and sounds and sights of nature. Do it for the right reasons. That'll have the most positive impact on your imagery. Then train your eye and just slowly, as Ron's talked about on many podcasts, one step at a time, improve a little bit each time. You know, and, and give yourself patience and keep doing it for the love of it. It will if if you're good and you devote the time and train your eye, it should improve and then opportunities will come along. Well said. Uh, I think that's all good. Yeah. Go ahead, Ron. Well, no, I was just gonna I was just gonna say, you know, Mark talks about niches a lot. And by that, you know, are you going to be a moose photographer? Are you going to be a deer photographer? Are you, That's the same uh, niche or niche, same uh, one. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Um, but I think the best part about doing this podcast has been we've seen and gotten the opportunity or had the opportunity to speak with so many people who all do it a little bit differently. Um, you know, you look at Doug Gardner, for instance, Started off as a still photographer, has moved into more of a videographer, cinematographer role. He's made it big with that. Shane McGuire, she does a lot with her tours. Great photographer, but she does it a little bit different. Um, Garrett Venn, who we just had on a, a few weeks ago. Garrett strictly, I mean, not strictly, but his primary focus is threatened and endangered species. He works for the Cornell lab of ornithology. They send him all over the world, basically knowing that he's able to get what they need him to get to document these species and their, their behavior and their life cycle. Just so, I mean, this list could go on and on and on. If you listen back to all the guests that we've had, Tim Irvin, again, completely different. He, and he's done it several ways. Um, but if you think about it, 
there, there's a lot of ways that you can do this, but you do have to find what you're passionate about because there's going to be a day when it sucks so bad that your passion is going to be the only thing that gets you through. So if you don't, if you don't have that fire burning inside of you, you might decide it's time to step off the cliff and, and go completely into professional photography where that is the only way that you make your living. But if you don't have that fire, that journey is not going to take you very far. Even if you do have that fire, it's, it's a process. Definitely a process. Yeah. A lot of work behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, 25 years later, when I get with a caribou or a moose or any of the animals, a bear that I love to photograph, it's like the first time for me. The excitement, I'm in that moment. It's all present. It's right then. And that's, and I know you guys are, feel identically that way. And so much of our audience does, but (laughs) you know, that's, that's, that tells me, I, 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 that's my, as far as what I personally like to do and what feeds my soul, being in those moments with, with these wildlife and interacting with them, it's just as exciting now as it was 25 years ago when I started. That's and and if you feel that as a photographer, as as in, then I don't know. I can't I can't speak for other people, but well, and I can take that one step further because for me, it's I have just as much fun creating an image of bass fishing or what I this assignment we just had in Florida. I mean, it's all about creating this cool image that people want to look at or that tells a story or you know whatever the use is for whatever you're doing. If you're doing that well and people are responding, that that that's what feeds my passion. You know, that's that's why I do it. Mm. Awesome. So Michael told me that I could not so I had a little change of venue because I had some internet connection problems. So I had to move, change locations, and I forgot my microphone stand, so I've had to hold the mic this whole time. That's why Mark was giving me a hard time earlier if you're watching this on YouTube. Michael told me when I first got to this setup, he said, okay, but you just can't break out in song. So as soon as Mark just said, every time feels like the first time, every time I'm back out there, that feels like the first time just hit my head and I it was close. <laughs> Do it. Go, go. Keep in mind what Michael had said earlier, and I, I held my tongue. So what is that? That's why I was. That's why I was laughing. Yeah, I think so. Yep. Right on. It's that's one whoever thing our podcast hasn't had, or much of. It's I not going to have tonight either because I'm terrible. <laughs> I think I tried once at some some song, some lyric, yeah, which I regretted immediately. But there you go. Throw it out there. But I just, yeah, there's just so many different ways to do it. But I think take your time. I, I'm going to stick to that one step at a time. And- yeah. Well, keep the questions coming. We love getting them. We love talking about them. There's so many good ones. And I know there's so many out there that haven't even registered to us yet. So as our listening or viewing audience, we encourage you to send them in. And no matter what podcast, podcast, platform you're listening to us on hit that follow or subscribe button and to give us a positive review a five-star rating or thumbs up as those help us to do what we'd love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis also on youtube hit that bell notification button because we will have more content coming and if you want to 
see it as soon as it comes up. It's free. You just receive a notification when you activate the bell. And that way we know that you'll get to view it at your leisure. You can see more of our team's content on Instagram, Facebook, on YouTube, and of course at wildandexposed.com. I'd like to take a moment and give a special big shout out to Missy McKenzie, our hardworking and talented producer who works behind the scenes to bring you this podcast for your listening enjoyment on a weekly basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.